When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Climate change isn't just coming. It's already here. At COP26, we heard from islands all over the world who are now at risk. But what about Britain? There are coastal villages in this country that now face the full force of climate change. The residents there have come up with a plan of, well, who's going to have the sandbanks and the pumps? Do we need to buy a boat? Now, a little village in Somerset called Steart, one of the places in this country that's most at risk, is pioneering a solution. When the waters swell, they now flow through what's called a breach gate and they flood into this sort of specially made, bespoke area of coastal marshland. Has the world overlooked a vital source of carbon capture? Could rebuilding a habitat from the past help us to secure our future? Wetlands, or sort of marshland around the world, locks up and absorbs more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than all of the world's forests combined. Pioneering projects like the one in Steart in Somerset are being supported by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, one of the charities benefiting from this year's Christmas appeal from the Times and the Sunday Times. We'll hear from scientists about the astonishing results from the project in Steart. In terms of the numbers, we have found that in the first four years, the Steart Marshes site stored just around 67,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the little Somerset village taking on climate change. As The Times' science and religious affairs correspondent, Kaya Burgess has spent much of this year covering climate change. We tend to hear with climate change that Pacific islands are going to start disappearing under the sea. We hear about the Amazon rainforest and sort of Arctic ice sheets and the deserts of equatorial regions spreading. And they can all seem very far off problems to someone perhaps living in Britain. But experts in this country, the Met Office included, are saying we are already seeing the impacts of climate change in this country. One of the effects can be uh, our winters are becoming milder, which might sound like a good thing, but stormier, and that rainfall, or certainly intense bursts and periods of rainfall are becoming more common and, and rivers are swelling. And one thing that we see around the UK is that the way we've treated our rivers in Britain 
uh, is that we've often covered their floodplains in concrete and tarmac or the rivers themselves have been given sort of steep concrete sides to kind of keep them out of the way of the houses. But what this means is that when they spill over their banks, which is something that rivers do naturally, they've got nowhere to go. The waters end up just going into sort of homes and businesses. And so storms and flooding we are seeing with increasing frequency around Britain. Yeah. And um, coastal areas, you know, the erosion from the sea and tidal surges and literally you know, properties falling into the sea. And I went to visit uh, a community in Somerset, and of course Somerset famously was devastated by flooding on the levels in 2014. It started as a flooding crisis. It's now an all-out war on water. The flooding far below is now into its eighth week. Very low-lying bit of land, which actually was once underwater many years ago and has been sort of reclaimed by human activity over centuries, and now the, the sea is trying to claim it back, it would seem. Um, and this amazing little village I visited called Steert. It's a tiny handful of houses, it's about 14 properties, I think, on this little peninsula that juts out into the Bristol Channel. Sort of essentially the start of the Severn Estuary. And these houses are surrounded by the waters of the Bristol Channel to the north and the River Parrot, which is the river that flooded the Somerset levels in large parts, to the sort of east and south. So they're surrounded on three sides by water. Gosh, that sounds beautiful. It is beautiful and it's beautifully remote. We call it a village, but it's got a church. It doesn't have any shops, any pubs, any post offices. It's just a tiny collection of houses and a church. Oh, wow. <laughs> When I went to visit, I was so lucky in that, obviously in the pandemic, we've all been trapped in the areas we live in a lot more. But I went a couple of weeks ago to Steert on this beautiful, kind of cold, but crisp and, and beautifully sunny November morning. And it was a real tonic. And one of the things that they do at these sites is that GPs can actually refer people to spend more time in the great outdoors. If anyone's sort of struggling with any kind of mental health issue or anxiety or, or anything else. It's often known as green prescribing, which is where doctors prescribe essentially time in nature. But it's specifically known as blue prescribing because apparently spending time near water is particularly good for mental health, apparently. That's amazing. I could really appreciate that. It was the fresh air and the broad horizons and lots of sky and wind in the rushes and the reeds and, and people very quietly of course, it's quite a key thing if you're bird watching to be quiet, watching these birds coming and going. While Stuart is in a stunning location, being on a remote peninsula is a little less idyllic when you're worrying about climate change. They're very well aware that they're surrounded by water on three sides and there's a very narrow sort of country lane style road leading in and out of the village, which has at times been covered with water and flooded and the residents there uh, have come up with a plan of well who's going to have the sandbanks and the pumps do we need to buy a boat so that when the road is flooded there's actually a way in and out of the village i mean that all seems like a realistic prospect exactly yes they're, they're being very practical about it they're just sort of saying that these are the things we're going to possibly have to do that if that road gets flooded really regularly we're going to need to get out of the village <laughs> in one way or another so these aren't people kind of catastrophizing they're just trying to be practical about what's this going to mean for our homes and just behind this village was this whole area of farmland. It was used for grazing and growing uh, wheat and rye, I think, quite intensively farmed. And that has, over previous years, been flooded with salt water, which clearly is very bad for, for farmland. And an idea was come up with, which was rather than trying to keep the sea and sort of the river water out, why don't we sort of invite the flood water in, but give it somewhere safe to go? 
Now, I'm really intrigued by this because it sounds so counterintuitive. <laughs> How does it work? I think local residents, when they were first told about it, were a little bit sort of... Uh, alarmed? I can understand that. We're worried it's going to flood, so why don't we encourage it to flood early? <laughs> well, exactly. And so there's a fantastic charity which uh, the Times and the Sunday Times are supporting as part of our Christmas charity appeal this year. They're called the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. And the term wetlands is very evocative. It, it can mean anything from sort of marshland to kind of beautiful areas of field with kind of rushes and reeds. And they're famously brilliant for wildlife and for for rare birds. And, and these sorts of marshlands and wetlands used to cover huge parts of the UK. They used to lie naturally in coastal areas, around rivers, and an important function that they provided, as well as being a habitat for a huge range of animals, was that they were sort of like a natural flood defence. When a river spilled over its bank naturally, the water would spill into this thick vegetation, this sort of marshy land, which would soak up that water, slow it down, which meant that you know the village downstream wouldn't be flooded, or when the tides surged in, it would soak into the coastal marshland and not threaten local homes and farms and businesses. But as we have tarmac and concreted over these sort of areas or drained them for farmland, the waters kind of have nowhere to go. Mm. And so this idea in Somerset uh, by the coast was, let's turn this farmland, which is flood prone anyway, let's buy it up, excavate it, and actually dig new creeks and channels and pools, um, grow thick rushes and reeds and vegetation. They made a deliberate hole in the flood bank along where the river is, so that when the waters swell, they now flow through what's called a breach gate, and they flood into this sort of specially made bespoke area of coastal marshland. It soaks them up. And it soaks up all of this extra water. It provides incredible habitat for birds, which have already sort of flocked back in to make it their home. And a fascinating study was done. It's a great stat I only learned a few weeks ago, which is that wetlands or sort of marshland around the world locks up and absorbs more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than all of the world's forests combined. Now, I was pretty astonished when I heard that. So to understand how on earth that's possible, we spoke to the scientists from Manchester Metropolitan University who've been studying the project at Steart Marshes. One of those scientists is... Dr Hannah Mossman, I'm a restoration ecologist, so I work on creating new habitats and how plants and animals colonise their habitats, and I particularly focus on salt marshes. The new wetland habitat they've created at Steart is a salt marsh, land that's regularly soaked by seawater. Most people who have been to the seaside have probably seen a salt marsh but not really realised that they've seen one. They're sort of forgotten habitats. And so when you go to the seaside and you see on the other side of the seawall, maybe you're looking out towards the sea and you see some muddy stuff and so maybe some grass and some green stuff on the shoreline. Now, that's what salt marsh is. So salt marsh is where the water can be slower. So where the tide comes in and there's not very many waves, the mud can settle out. And when the mud settles out and it's nice and calm, then you can get plants to colonise. And that essentially becomes a salt marsh. It's full of different plants that only occur on salt marshes. But I mostly describe it as a muddy plant. What are the amazing things about salt marshes? I mean, in terms of wildlife and plant life, why are they so different? They're particularly difficult and challenging places for wildlife to live. So they're kind of stuck between the sea and the land. They get covered by the sea, maybe once or twice a day, and often covered completely by the sea. Then they're completely exposed to the air. And so it's not like living on land and it's not like living in the sea. It's like having to live on both parts. 
That makes it really challenging because it's salty and it's wet and it's dry and it's exposed. Anything that lives on a salt marsh is essentially especially adapted to live there, and so the biodiversity is very unique. All the plants that live on salt marshes are essentially only found on salt marshes. They're really important for birds, so internationally important for feeding waders and wildfowl, so ducks and things like that. They're incredibly productive places. Although they're small in size, they're really, really important for biodiversity. The flooding of the land and the creation of Steart Marshes happened in 2014. It's a project that was undertaken by the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, a charity that The Times and The Sunday Times are supporting as part of our Christmas charity appeal. Before it happened, we wanted to go and sample the land beforehand so we could understand, was there a difference? Did it matter if it was arable or grassland before? Did that have any consequences for how the salt marsh developed over time? And so we wanted to go before. And so I was in a bit of a flap because I didn't really have time to do all of this by myself. And that's where Rachel came in. Rachel, the other half of this dynamic scientific duo, is better known as Dr. Rachel Dunk. I work in environmental science and management at Manchester Metropolitan University. And my main interests are around climate change and particularly climate change education and carbon management. Rachel came to the rescue. It was very fortuitous. So Hannah and I had both recently joined Manchester Met. And although Hannah is a biologist and I'm an environmental scientist, we were put in a shared office. Hannah was um, a bit of a fluster one day and I asked her what was wrong. And she was worrying about how on earth she was going to do baseline sampling across this enormous site. I mean, 250 hectares is roughly 250 football pitches or 250 Twickenhams. What does baseline sampling consist of? So doing a survey of the site, looking at its condition, what plants were present, or that would have been the way Hannah's thinking as an ecologist was going, understanding the current land use of the site so that we know where we're starting from as we're monitoring change after the site gets flooded. So I asked Hannah to explain a bit about the site to me and offered to accompany her as long as we could add sampling for carbon to the plans research at the site because these coastal sites are really, really important in terms of storing carbon and addressing climate change. And that was where our interests overlapped and it's been a beautiful collaborative partnership ever since then. Tell me a bit about the work you've ended up doing together. As I've just said, these sites are really important for storing carbon and it's referred to as blue carbon. So these are our coastal habitats like salt marshes, but it also includes things like seagrass beds or kelp forests or mangrove forests in more exotic locations. And they're really efficient at storing carbon. So carbon gets taken out of the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide gets removed by plants during photosynthesis and fixed in their leaves and branches and so on. And also by phytoplankton in the marine environment and in our rivers and lakes and so on. And this plant debris and then also animal debris as well gets both washed into the site on the tide but also is produced inside the site by the salt marsh plants and the animals that are living inside the site. And that gets buried in the sediments. And because these sites 
accumulate sediment. Every time the tide comes in, you're getting a new layer of mud laid down. They're really efficient at keeping that carbon preserved and locked away in the sediments. So even though they're this thin strip of land along our coasts, which as Hannah said, you know, it's really easy for us to overlook. Scientists as a whole have really overlooked these sites until pretty recently. You know, it's only mm. been the last sort of 10, 20 years that scientists have really started getting interested in these locations as carbon stores, that is. And that's because when we think of our forests, you know, we think of the, the picture of the Amazon rainforest comes into our heads something that's continental scale. It's enormous. You can't miss it. Whereas this tiny margin, the coasts, is relatively easy to overlook. But if you look at all the carbon stored in all the world's forests, well, you are storing about the same amount of carbon in all the world's coastal zones. So although they're a very small area, they are really efficient carbon stores and they're crucially important in addressing climate change, both to make sure we conserve what's left of salt marshes and mangroves and seagrass beds, but also that we restore sites that have been degraded and create new sites as well in the same way that we preserve our forests and plant new ones. This bit, you know, the carbon capture effectively is your area of expertise. You've done some astonishing experiments to work out how effective salt marshes are. I mean, how effective are they, you know, given how worried we all are about climate change at capturing carbon? We're still at the beginnings of our understandings of what goes on in the salt marshes and how much carbon individual sites accumulate. So I'll I'll stay focused just on Steert, which is quite amazing in terms of the amount of carbon that's accumulating at this site. So Steart Marshes is located down in the Severn Estuary. It's what we call a hypertidal estuary. So the tidal range is huge, really enormous differences between low tide and high tide. So the Steart site, since the seawall was breached and the tide was allowed to come back into the site, has accumulated a huge amount of sediment because of that. And that is driving large amounts of carbon being stacked up. And in terms of the numbers, we have found that in the first four years, the Steart Marshes site stored just around 67,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. That sounds like a hell of a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. It's equivalent to the amount of electricity that we use in around 78,000 homes per year. Just for a bit of context, that's roughly equivalent to a town the size of Guildford. That's how much has been stored in the Steart Marshes over the first four years of the project. That does sound phenomenal. It is. And what we're now working on is trying to understand... There's a number of things. That rate of carbon storage is very high compared to what's been reported for other sites in the UK so far. So Hannah and I are continuing our collaboration and working with other partners as well to broaden our understanding and look at lots of different sites, both in the wider seven and around the UK, to see whether Steart is unusual or whether there are other sites where we're seeing carbon storage at this sort of rate. 
other sites that have been looked at previously have been situated, you know, places where they're not as muddy, essentially. And so they've stored over the same sort of time scale, 18 times less. And so these really muddy places are really exciting for this carbon storage. Coming up, we'll look at some of the other benefits of the Steert Salt Marsh. But first... Hi, my name's Ben Spencer and I'm science editor of The Sunday Times. My job is to get to grips with complex issues from coronavirus to climate change. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Please consider subscribing today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All over the world, as people wrestle with climate change, trees and planting forests are being seen as a big part of the solution. But are we missing a trick? If salt marshes are so effective at capturing carbon... Why aren't we all talking about the environmental benefits of mud? Well, essentially, it's mud, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's quite hard to be excited about mud. Unless you're three or four. You clearly are. <laughs> yes. You imagine, like, planting a tree. You feel like it's very visual. It's a, a practical thing. We all feel very good about planting a tree. You know, you can imagine your garden planting a tree. But how do you persuade somebody to essentially realise there's as much carbon in a tree as in mud? You know, you can't see the carbon. You can't envisage the carbon. You can't feel the carbon. It's quite hard to persuade people that this kind of, like, grey, gloopy stuff that sticks to your feet and makes everything really yucky is actually really valuable. But it is really valuable because not just does it contain tons of carbon, but it contains, you know, so many invertebrates that are rich with food. It's dense, full of calories, full of invertebrates that keep our wintering ducks and geese going. And so actually these kind of environments are not only really important for carbon, but they're really important for biodiversity. But ultimately it's changing people's perception of mud that I think is really valuable. <laughs> mud is like gold. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyone can go and plant a tree in their own garden and you don't have an issue of scale with tree planting. So you might have a community group who wants to do something for climate change and they've got a little piece of unused or abandoned land or a field somewhere or some allotments and they can do tree planting in and around those areas. Whereas when you're looking at creating a coastal wetland, it's quite a large scale engineering project with multiple stakeholders. You need to bring together all the landowners, the local communities, the environment agency, uh, a consultancy firm to design the site and so on. So all of that also just makes it a little bit more challenging to do. But hopefully we'll be seeing more of these projects in the future. Kaya who recently visited the Steart Marshes site, found the scheme was flourishing. It's worked out really well. One of the expertise that the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust have is that they not only create these wetlands, but they actually turn them into visitor centres so that people can come. And it's hugely popular with bird watchers in Steart. I can imagine. And they work really closely with the villagers to make sure that if we're going to suddenly start inviting hundreds of people to come along, it's not going to disturb this village. One of the beautiful things about it is that it's quite remote and isolated. So they made sure that the car park that people use is completely over the other side of the peninsula so that it won't disturb the villagers and no traffic would go through the village because they can come in by a, you know, a different route. It's interesting, some of the farmers can graze their cattle on a particular area of the salt marsh. And I didn't know this either. There's a delicacy called salt marsh beef. I didn't know that. Which apparently is this delicious delicacy that is now sold to some fancy restaurants in Somerset and Bristol. Uh, They grow samphire as well, which can be harvested and used in restaurants. And Kaya, for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, I mean, what is the grand plan now? So they have a campaign called Wetlands Can, and I think their aim is to restore 100,000 hectares of wetland, various forms, so coastal sort of salt marshes like a steert or little urban projects like in Slough, all around the UK. And there's huge areas where this can happen, particularly neglected sites or farmland. So they want to create 100,000 hectares around the country to try and harness all these benefits, both obviously for wildlife, flooding, soaking up carbon dioxide, providing just beautiful kind of open spaces for people to go and boost their mental health and well-being. And so that's what they'll be using the kind of donations from Times and Sunday Times readers to to help fund all of their staff who have all of these expertise from landscape architects and engineers to um, marine biologists and ecologists and tourism experts to make sure that these are all done in a way that brings benefits for local people. Wow. And how much of an impact do they think that could make on climate change? Is this a reason to be cheerful? It is a reason to be cheerful. I mean, absolutely. I mean, everybody is always looking for the silver bullet, something along the lines of, wow, look, if we just restore marshland around the country, well, that's that's it. Job done, net zero tomorrow. <laughs> and clearly there is no silver bullet. Clearly it's going to have to be a huge combination of projects such as obviously restoring wetlands and marshlands would be helpful, but also I've written in the last few months about trying to switch over some of our energy generation to use hydrogen rather than natural gas and fossil fuels and coal and so on. It's going to have to be very multifaceted. I think what's really interesting with the fight against climate change is that some of the sceptics like to highlight the cost of it. It's going to cost a lot of money to do all of these things, but that actually, ultimately, if you can find projects like these, for example, which 
are good for the environment, good for wildlife, good for soaking up carbon dioxide, but at the same time, we're actually producing a real benefit in that they're beautiful open spaces, they're tackling flooding, they're bringing back places for bird watchers to go and visit, that actually tackling climate change becomes something that it's not just averting catastrophe, but it's actually bringing a really nice benefit that people can in, enjoy and use as well. With climate change, it's quite easy to feel very negative. But actually, in the UK, we have got some conservation success stories that are building hopefully towards solutions for climate change and so organizations like the WWT are really fantastic at creating wetlands and they are a conservation success story the populations of some wetland birds really on the up we've got things recolonizing that used to occur here hundreds of years ago and then became extinct things like egrets are recolonizing the UK and so the fact that these places now are potentially really good for climate change is a real positive in what otherwise can feel quite a depressing landscape Kaya, if people want to help and they want to help the Times Christmas Appeal, how do they do it? The donation website and donation phone lines will be open until the end of January, actually. And if people want to donate online, they can very easily. They can visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Christmas Appeal. It's 24 hours a day. Or there's also a phone number, which is 0151 284 2336, which you can also donate by. And the, fascinatingly, with the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, there's an arrangement where any money that gets donated will be doubled up to £115,000 by a group called Moto in the community and a, an anonymous donor as well, so that every pound that you give will be worth two through that doubling as well. So we're hoping just essentially to raise as much money as possible for, for this charity's work. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times science and religion correspondent, Kaya Burgess, as well as Dr. Hannah Mossman and Dr. Rachel Dunk from Manchester Metropolitan University. The Times and The Sunday Times are also supporting the work of two other charities as part of this year's Christmas Appeal, the Refugee Council and Outward Bound. To find out more or to donate to them, go to thetimes.co.uk slash Appeal. The producers were Arlie Adlington, who's also our brilliant sound mixer today, and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.